0: There is one question more powerful than any other question. One question that keeps you up at night. One question that humbles you. One question which makes you equal with the greatest minds in all the world combined. One question that men have, and women alike, have been plagued with since the beginning of time. One question even today that you may be consumed with. The question more powerful, more difficult than any other question, and that's the question why. Why? Why did this happen to me? Why did I get cancer? Why did I lose a child? Why am I poor? Why am I even here? The question, why, is provocative. It's humbling. You were considered how many times you've asked that question in your life? Why? Why did that car hit me and not the person in front of me? Why am I so ugly and they're so pretty? Why, why, why? Have you ever considered the fact that the fact that you ask the question why demonstrates that you're not God? You see, God never ask the question, why? Because God knows all answers. He alone knows why things happen. Why things are the way they are. Have you ever considered how how great it is that the greatest genius in this world doesn't know the answer to every why. It's humbling to... and it's often discouraging also. Why do things happen the way they do? As we think about that question, why, and you apply it to the narrative of Scripture, why if God appointed David to be the king of Israel, does it take him so long to get there? Why is his ascension to the throne so hard and so long? Why doesn't God just snap his fingers and, and just put David out of his misery? Put him on the throne. We could take that question all the way back to the garden. Why did you even create man if you knew that he was going to rebel against you? Why don't you just snap your finger and just save everyone? Why are we still here? What's the deal, God? Why all of this drama? Why? Well, I want that question just to be in your mind this morning as we think and approach this text. As we think about 1 Samuel 24, and before we jump into there, let's, uh, let's get ourselves oriented around the text. Last week, we left David held up in the strongholds of Engedi. David was on the run from King Saul, not because of anything David had done, but because of Saul's own egomanic, crazed mind. King Saul has truly gone insane. By the Lord's providence, we saw that God delivered David. Not because David did something great, but because God was gracious and he provided for David. He provided him escape from Saul's grasp. We were told in the text as we ended last week that Saul had been called away to fight the Philistines who had come in. He had been called back from his pursuit of David so that he could do his actual job, which was to protect the, the nation of Israel from his enemies. And this week, we kind of pick up the story with that scene. David is still hiding out in in Getty, uh, a caverned area that looks over the Dead Sea, full of, of great resources, protection, running water, all the amenities that one on the run would need. It was a popular place for shepherds, of course. David was a shepherd. He would have known this area well. and He would have known the natural resources there that would have provided the protection and the means necessary to endure the long, hard persecution that Saul was bringing upon him. And as we pick up the story again, Saul returns from battle with the Philistines. A, a victory. Decisive defeat over the Philistines, and he rejoins his effort to capture David. And so again, David is on the run, and Saul is closing in quickly. It is but a matter of moments, one misstep, one wrong turn, and David will be captured. I invite you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 24. First Samuel chapter twenty-four, page two hundred forty-six in the Pew Bible. I invite you to follow along as I read. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, "Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi." Then Saul took three thousand chosen men out of all of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. He came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the intermost part of that cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemies into your hands, and you shall do to him as seems good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him. Because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave. And he called after Saul, My Lord, the king! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed.'" See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? A flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hands. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son, David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he not let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. As we consider David's actions in this passage. This passage is meant to reflect to us who God really is. The character of David in this text is meant to lead us to see that God is a just God. Yet in his kindness shows mercy to those who are undeserving. In other words, this text shows us the kind of king we truly need. A king who is merciful and a king who is just. In our passage this morning, David is on trial. You could see the kind of language that David uses, the language of a courtroom. I plead my case. The Lord judge between me and between you. David's on trial and not not one that's literal, not a literal you know courtroom, but rather one that seeks to vindicate David as a just and a merciful king. The scenes of our passage play out like a court case. We see first the facts of the case. We're told the story, what happened, and then we see in the the second sort of middle verses, verses eight through verse fifteen, the The evidence in the case. And finally, the final scene provides us the, the verdict in the case. The declaration that David is the king God's people needs. Well, let's consider first the facts of the case. Let's just look here at what we are told in customary Old Testament narrative. There's a sort of a short synopsis of what happened, and then a very lengthy period of, of conversation, of, of dialogue. In fact, this is the longest recorded speech that Saul ever gives. It's a very lengthy speech, and, and David's speech himself is, is very lengthy. So we want to pay attention to what they're saying, and really what that means for us together as God's people. Well, first, in verses 1-4, through four, we are told of the motive. And the opportunity that David had. David had both motive and opportunity to kill King Saul. In God's strange providence, these two men end up together in the same cave. Now for you this morning, you're thinking, okay, how many caves were there? There were thousands of caves scattered across the mountains. And Saul happens to wander into the one that David and his men are in. By God's providence, God has delivered Saul into David's hands. I think we're to understand that this was a, a test for David. How would he respond to this test? Would he be faithful to the word of the Lord? Or would he put out his hand and murderously kill Saul? We'll look at the text. Verse 2, we are told that Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. You'll be reminded that David only has 600 men, of which are the, the rejects, the, the ones that no one wanted. Remember, they were, the, they were the tired and the weak. They were the ones that, that really weren't Elite fighting force. But but here in the text we're told that Saul comes with 3,000. It's a 5 to 1 ratio of the elite men of Israel. This again leads us to see the crazed king and how much he wants to see David dead. David is again in an impossible situation. They find themselves hidden in the back of a cave And in walks King Saul. It's fascinating if you think about this particular text, that in stories, this is one thing that often is neglected in storytelling. You think about it, how many movies have you seen? How many stories have you read? And how often do they have the characters going to the bathroom? (laughs) Not often. Not unless there's some importance to the story. And here we find King Saul in a precarious situation. Literally, with his pants down. King David and his men are in the back of the cave. They are trapped. If they do anything, if they alert Saul to their whereabouts, they are trapped. Three thousand men are outside this cave waiting to come in at the cry of Saul. They need to choose their next steps very wisely. David and his men sit waiting. And his men see this as an opportunity. The day the Lord has made. The day the Lord has made to deliver your enemies, King David. Here it is. The Lord has done this. Look, here He is. Opportunity. God has opened a door. Therefore, it must mean that you should walk through that door. David is obliged, we are told in the text. Look what we are told in verse 4. Then David rose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Stealthily. Imagine how much stealth needed to, uh, he needed to have in order to do that. He is in a cave and he is sneaking up on a man who is going to the bathroom. As he comes to him and cuts off just the the corner of his robe. The kingly robe. The robe that represented Saul's authority over the kingship. That robe which Samuel tore out of the hand of Saul and said, So is the kingdom torn out of your hand and given to your neighbor David. David cuts off the corner. He has opportunity. Look, if you were that close to cut off a man's corner, you were close enough to kill that man. He had the motive. King Saul has been hunting him like a wild animal for years. David has been on the run. If there is any excuse, no one in this room would have blamed David if he would have king, killed King Saul. David, I understand. I understand. Yeah, it might have been manslaughter, but man, it surely wasn't murder. I mean, after all, you had motive. The text tells us, though, that David's actions led to remorse and repentance. Look again at the text, verse 5. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Really? Man, this guy must have a weak conscience. He did, all you did is cut his clothes. You didn't hurt him. He didn't. I mean, he can go get a new robe. I mean, those things can be replaced. Why was David struck? Because he knew that what he had done was take matters into his own hands. You might say that perhaps David understood an, an affront on the robe of his authority... That David was confronting Saul's authority and he was, he was defacing that authority. He was undermining that authority. That perhaps is what David is thinking. We really don't know. The text doesn't say. But regardless, the Spirit of God convicts him and leads him to remorse. And Notice what David does. Notice David's reason in verse 6. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed." To put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. Twice in one sentence, he emphasizes Saul's the Lord's. In other words, what David is saying here is if God wants to dispose this anointed one, then he'll do it. Because he's his possession. You see, remember that from grammar, right? The possessive. Apostrophe S, it's the Lord's anointed. This isn't Israel's anointed. This is God's. It's His possession. And if God will remove him from the throne, then He will remove him from the throne. In other words, what David is saying is not every opportunity is the Lord's will. And I know that isn't popular. Because we pray for open doors all the time, right? The Lord opened a door for me. Brothers and sisters, every open door doesn't mean you should walk through it. Every opportunity you are given doesn't mean that this is the Lord's will for your life. And David here, in great wisdom, leads us to understand that just because there's opportunity doesn't mean we should take that opportunity. In fact, we are told that David uses this situation to once again save King Saul. David, a time and time again, is seen to be the savior of Saul. Remember the scene of Goliath, right? Who is Saul, or who is David saving? Well, the reputation of Saul, who is sitting passively while Goliath comes out and chants and calls the Israelites weak and helpless. Yet again, Saul is in this situation and David rescues him from danger. Brothers and sister- sisters, I would say that this text offers you Satan's promise. Satan's promise to you is that vengeance is good. And that vengeance will satisfy you. I wonder how many times you've been in these kind of situations where someone has sought your harm. Or someone has sought to do you harm. And then, under God's providence, you have the opportunity to get vengeance. You have opportunity to perhaps get back at the harm that was done to you. And Satan's promises to you is that vengeance is good. That it will make you happy. A number of years ago, I was serving as a pastor in a congregation. It was a very difficult time and season in my life, and I don't often share personal anecdotes because I don't think they're helpful. This one is applicable to this particular passage. I was serving with a a gentleman who was vindictive and mean, angry and needed Jesus. Oftentimes, my ideas would be promoted as his own ideas. When confronted, it would be confronted with evil, gossip, and backbiting. It was a deplorable and awful season of life. So much so that I wanted to quit ministry. I was like, I am done with this. I don't need this. I am sick of this. I am tired of the lies and deception and evil. I just want to get back. And I had the opportunity, and, and by God's great providence, one day, Monday morning, after yet again, another meeting where I had been thrown under the proverbial bus, been stabbed in the back yet again, my reading plan took me to 1 Samuel in chapter 24. And I sat in my office and I began to read as I would every morning. and, And here I came to this text. David had opportunity, but he did not avail himself, but rather trusted the Lord's deliverance. Friend, I wonder in your own life where you have opportunity to seek vengeance. You may be given the promise that if you will just take matters into your own hands, then you'll experience the freedom that you seek. That the injustice that has been done to you will be righted. Jesus faced a similar temptation. You'll be reminded when Jesus began his ministry, before he went into ministry, the enemy took him to a high place. Matthew tells us in Matthew chapter 8 or chapter 4 and verse 8, again, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. In other words, you can have this world without the cross. You can have all that your father promised you, but you you won't have the cross. He tempted him with a crossless future. And that's what King David was faced with. A crossless future. Future. David, take it into your own hands and it will be done. It will be over. Saul will be dead. You can go about your life. You can ascend the throne. You can have all of the kingdom. It will be yours. You can have it today. These were the facts of the case. This open door, David saw, was not an opportunity. It was not the will of the Lord. David had this open door, but did not avail himself, rather trusted the Lord's purposes. David here demonstrates tremendous patience in the Lord, does he not? He is patient, saying, Another day, another day. Well, let's look secondly at the evidence in the case against David, against his justice and mercy. We are told in verses 8 through 10, the, the confession. Notice how David comes out of the cave. Does he come out with sword in hand after King Saul? No. Notice what he says to him. Verse 8 My Lord the King. My Lord the King. This is the second time that we are told that David refers to Saul as my Lord. He is demonstrating respect for King Saul honoring King Saul. The man that is seeking to kill him, he is honoring with his words. And these are not just mere vain words. He is truly honoring him. My Lord. Notice what he does next. He bows down on the ground. He, he pays homage to, his, to the man that wants to kill him. Why do you listen to the words of men? Why do you listen to these words, David says? Look, I had opportunity, but I did not avail myself of it. David here demonstrates tremendous righteousness. Does he not? He demonstrates that the way to attack is, is through humility. By love and grace. How many a conversations are diffused By words of kindness. How many fights ensue when we begin to throw words around like bombs and they explode? It's words of kindness that David uses here to defuse his enemy. David comes at Saul and he says, listen, Saul, verse 11, look at the evidence I have. I have an evidence that I would like to uh, bring to this case. I would like to insert this as evidence in my case. I'm innocent. I had opportunity and I did not avail myself of that opportunity, but rather I spared you. See, my 600 men wanted to kill you. Yeah, they might not be the elite fighting force of the day, but I'll tell you what. They had you. The text tells us in verse 7 that he cut them with his words. In other words, he held back his men with strong words. He literally held them back. They're like, David, if you're not going to do it, we're going to take care of it. You're going to be weak. That's cool. We're tired of being on the run. I'm tired of eating fast food and and running all the time. I want to go home. Oh, David held him. He spared them. He saved them. And in verses 12-13, through 13, we see David pleading for justice. He appeals in verse 12 for the Lord's justice to be done. Again, David here is trusting in the vengeance of the Lord. Remember the Apostle Paul teach the church, taught the church in Rome that vengeance is the Lord. Don't go seek justice for yourself, but trust the purposes of God. If you can avail yourself, avail yourself, but do not seek others harm for your own good. In other words, there's no reason or there's no uh, right and no way to right this wrong. Allow the balances in time to unfold. Look, my father, he says. The corner of your robe for this fact. He appeals to the mercy of God that God would avenge. That he would not take matters into his own hands. In Psalm 7, David reflects on this experience and others like them. And he says, O oh Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart. Render it in pieces with none to deliver. O oh my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friends with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul. And overtake it, and let, let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory to the dust. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift up yourself against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. David appeals to the mercy of God and his justice. God, you set this thing right. Brothers and sisters, it takes tremendous trust in the Lord to know that all injustice will be exposed. It's hard to bite one's tongue when you've been rightly mistreated, it's hard not to satisfy the lust of vengeance. When you think about it from everyday life, from driving on the interstate, someone cuts you off, feel that you'd be satisfied to go and cut them off. It just feels right and good. But those things never satisfy, do they? David not only appeals for justice, but pleads for mercy. He asks God to be merciful to him. He says that to King Saul, listen, who are you after here? Like, I'm nobody. I'm a dog. I'm a dead flea on a dog. I, I'm, that's how in, unimportant I am. Why are you doing this? I am righteous. And what David says in verse 13 is so profound, as we'll see it strikes Saul dead. He says, out of the wicked comes wickedness. In other words, out of me... Comes righteousness. Out of you comes wickedness. David is provoking King Saul in a way to understand his own sinfulness. David here doesn't just lay down and take it. It would be wrong to interpret injustice as, okay, I'm just gonna have to take it. David doesn't just take injustice. He doesn't take matters into his own hands, but he does speak up against it. And I think that's applicable to us. There is injustice all around us. But how often do we keep our mouths closed? Oh, we, you know, vengeance is the Lord. We just have to let things happen. That's not what King David does. He speaks up against it. No, he doesn't take matters into his own hands, but... He does confront it. And in our own lives, when we see injustice around us, we want to speak up. As Christians, we should be a part of seeing justice in our own world. We we shouldn't just say, oh, injustice is just part of living in a fallen world. No, 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 no. We want to speak up for those who cannot speak up for themselves. And plead for God's mercy. David's righteousness in this passage is a model for us. He did not take vengeance on the one who sought to destroy him, but rather trusted the Lord's mercy and justice. Friend, how do you need to trust the Lord today? How have you taken matters into your own hands? How how perhaps do you need to repent and rest in God's eternal justice? Finally, we see in in verses 16 through 22, the verdict. We see the powerful and crazed king, weeping like a little boy. As soon as David had finished speaking these words, Saul said to him, Is this your voice, my son, David? If you'll be reminded or recall, this is the first time he has referred to him as my son and to David. You see, he's been the son of Jesse up to this point. Um, phrase that is meant to belittle David. He was the son of Jesse. But here he calls him my son, David. Again, we're reminded of how the grace that David demonstrates works for reconciliation. If David had put out his hand against Saul, it would have been the end of it. No opportunity for Saul to repent. But yet we see him repent in his own way. Though, unfortunately, this repentance will not last. And as we pick up in chapter 26, we'll see Saul at it again. But nonetheless, Saul is repentant. At least for a season, he begins to, to weep. And confess in verse 17 that David, you are more righteous than I For you have repaid me good, where I have repaid you evil. We've heard it before. Kill him with kindness. Right? It's exactly what David does. He killed him with kindness. He got him with kindness. We'll be reminded of our Lord's words in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 44. I say to you, Love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. You see, it's so easy to love those who love you. Man, it's hard to pray for an enemy. It it is excruciatingly painful to even utter their name. But the Lord says pray. Love. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. This is what Saul is saying here. Listen, I just wanted to see you dead. I have repaid you evil and all you're doing is giving me good gifts. You're, you're being kind to me and generous to me and loving me. You've proven yourself to be a more godly man than me, Saul uh, David. You're a righteous man and I am wicked. David demonstrates himself to be a merciful and a just king. Saul confesses this. His own enemy, a man he wants to see dead, he confesses to be righteous. And in verse 20, notice what he does. He promises the kingship. Verse 20, and now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Saul comes to his senses. He sees that God is at work. Not because David was more powerful, though he was. Not because David was better, though he was. But because David was the Lord's anointed one. He was the king that God's people needed. Even Saul confessing this in this text. A promise of kingship. More than that, in verses 21 through 22, we see a plea for mercy on the behalf of Saul. He knows he's in trouble now. Now think about this. Let's get ourselves back there again. Saul, 3,000 troops. Steps away. David, 600 men in the back of a cave. David came, come out comes out of the cave, behind Saul. All it takes is one word, David's dead. 3000 men like that. Again, these aren't just your, you know, hillbillies that come down to help. No, no, these are the Green Berets of Israel. These are the Navy Seals. These are the elite fighting force of the day steps away from Saul or from David. And what does Saul do? He pleads mercy from David. How the tables have turned. David, please. When you become king, don't kill my family. This would have been expected. So that all the rivals to David would have been destroyed. So that none of Saul's family would rise up and try to take the throne. David would have... Killed everyone that would have been kind of expected. But yes, Saul pleads for mercy. And David obliges. We're told in Second Samuel in chapter 21, But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. See, David honored the request of his enemy. He invited him to his table. He let the son of Saul, his sworn enemy, sit at the king's table and to feast with him. He provided him all the land that Saul had acquired when he was a king. And he appointed servants to care for that land and to provide all that Mephibosheth needed. This truly was a gracious and merciful king. And Saul's confession and proclamation serve as an encouragement to both David and to us. That God's promises will not be thwarted, not even by a wicked king. His promises will be fulfilled. David, why didn't you take that opportunity? Because God's promise was sufficient. I was trusting in the Lord. We've seen in the trial before whether David was the king God's people needed. Was he the one that the people needed? We've considered the facts of the case. There we saw David trusting the Lord's promises. We considered also the evidence of the case, the corner of Saul's robe, as proof of David's righteous heart. And finally, we've seen the verdict that he was truly righteous, merciful, and just. He is found to be the king that God's people needed. But beyond David is another king, another king who we are told was mistreated not because of something he did. In First Peter, in chapter 2, in verse 21, 22, he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself To him who judges justly. Jesus went silently. He himself bore our sin in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. David submitted. Himself, to the mercy and justice of God. Jesus, David's greater brother, the one whom we sang about earlier, this King would face the greatest injustice mankind would ever know. An innocent man, the only innocent man to ever live. Dying for, for a crime He never committed. So that you might go free. Jesus died on the cross for the sins you commit. And I commit that Jesus bore the greatest injustice so that justice might be done. So that God, Paul says, might be both the just and the justifier of the one who believes in Jesus. Who trusts in Jesus. Jesus died for our sins so that we might live to righteousness. So that we might not seek our own vengeance So we might not right all the wrongs that have been done against us so that God might be glorified in us. Brothers and sisters, let us trust in this Jesus for salvation. Let's pray. Father, we often have opportunity in our life to seek vengeance. Maybe today there's someone that we could quickly think that we would be right in our own mind to hurt and harm because they harmed us. Father, we pray that today we might find that vengeance is the Lord. It's yours, it's not ours. Our responsibility is to speak up, to plea and cry out, but to trust to trust in your purposes and your promises. Lord, may what has been promised to us be true. This is what we depend our eternal soul upon. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.